always love child dedications. And so to family, friends, guests that, that are here, thank you all for being part of things this morning. Um, again, thanks for gathering. Thanks for bringing the church into this place. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church uh, into your living room, wherever you happen to be viewing from. We are diving into this sermon series that we've been doing through the fall that it it's based on this one particular line out of the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous uh, psalms out there, that the Lord is my shepherd. And there's this promise that's embedded in it that the, 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 the psalmist recognizes, oh, the Lord is the one who restores my soul. And it also, though, serves as a real prayer for us. Because I think if we're honest, there are lots of things, lots of ways we just feel beat down, discouraged. There's an anxiousness. Um, we feel that individually, but even just kind of culturally as a whole, there's just kind of like this collective anxiousness that we feel. And it does a number, I think, if we're honest, on our soul. Like we need to pay attention to our souls. And so there's really a prayer that we've been offering up each week when we gather to say, Lord, thank you for your promises, but also would you restore my soul? And the opportunity we have as we gather each week to come into the, the church, this is not all that it means to be the church, but we do need this time so that we can be reminded together of what is true, what is good, what is, what is beautiful, what are the things that the Lord has created, what he's invited us into, the story we've been invited into. And when we rest in those truths, that's where we actually find our souls restored. And so each week we've been looking at a particular truth, and we'll, I'll share that here in a moment, but we also want to look at what are some of the lies that push against this. And so this morning what we're going to look at is this truth that you, if you're in Christ, you have a sacred story. And if you're somebody that's still trying to sort through like what you believe, I'm so glad that you're here. Part of God's story and design and his work in your life is that he has you here on this particular Sunday morning, to know that you as well are invited into this epic grand narrative that the, the God of the universe is writing, and that you have a story. And we want to see people move from what sometimes can be this fixed mindset of like this, this fixed perspective that's like, well, this is what's happened, and here's, here's who I am, and my identity is already fixed, and there's nothing that can do to, to change it, like ways maybe you've been sinned against, some of the shame that you carry. There can be this tendency to believe, like, this is just where I'm stuck. But there is this invitation from the Lord, this unfolding, redemptive story and the reality is the Bible tells what is this ultimate epic story. And we are all these lesser stories, not because it means your story is insignificant, but rather it's meant to get connected to the ultimate story. When we try and make our story ultimate, that's actually what destroys our souls. But I want to ask you to consider it this morning. Like, Do you even think about your life, the life that you've been given by God? Do you even think through the fact that you actually do have a story, that you have a sacred story? And to even take it a step further, have you considered that the author, capital A author, that is the God of the universe, is inviting you to help write your story? that there's this unfolding drama, this unfolding, beautiful narrative that he wants to invite you in to bring redemption, even to those places that if you're honest, you're like, I don't want to consider that. I don't want to think about those things. This is my prayer, this, as I thought about this morning in this text, is that we would all enter in with some expectant hearts, that you would know that the, the Lord Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly, that he is tender, 
that he's always gracious. He always moves towards people. And I think there'll be some things this morning, I'll kind of let you know ahead of time, that I think are sometimes difficult for us to consider. There's a level of honesty that the scriptures call us to so that we might actually experience healing. Because every single one of us this morning have carried in particular burdens, ways that we've been wounded, things that maybe we haven't considered for years. And what would it look like to invite Jesus into those spaces and to allow him to do his healing, mending work. I love the words of Dan Allender. He wrote a wonderful book called To Be Told. came out a number of years ago. Um, And here's how he starts this off. Very early in the book, he says this, your story has power in your own life, and it has power and meaning to bring to others. I want your story to stir me, to draw me to tears, compel me to ask hard questions. I want to enter your heartache and join you in the hope of redemption. But your story can't do these things if you can't tell it. You can't tell your story until you know it. And you can't truly know it without owning your part and writing it. And you won't write a really glorious story until you've, and here's the key, wrestled with the author who has already written long chapters of your life, many of them not to your liking. And so there's an assumption built into that quote that there are hard things that you have endured. There are hard things that I have endured. And what would it look like to move from this place of sort of this fixed mindset where maybe we, we sort of just see ourselves potentially even like in ways we've been sending us, but just with a victim mindset and we're just like, well, this is just where I'm stuck. What would it look like to see God bring redemption? To acknowledge what is hard and painful and difficult, but also not allow that to define and to set the entire trajectory of your life, to know that God is wanting to do something beautiful in and through you, that we all need one another's stories. Like, I need your story. You need my story. What would it look like to be honest about those things? And so I'm going to read a particular story out of the Old Testament um, in the book of Genesis that I think helps us. If we see, it's this amazing story. Many of you might, I'm thinking many of you are probably familiar with it, where we looked at that quote from Dan Allender. It says, you got to wrestle with the author. We're going to look at a text this morning that is about wrestling. In fact, I'd put before you, it is the ultimate wrestling match that has ever occurred in the history of mankind, all right? And I'm not talking about that wrestling that you're like, is that fake? Is that real? I'm talking about like an actual wrestling match that is occurring. And it's between Jacob and what starts out as this unnamed, mysterious figure that appears. And so the story is found in Genesis chapter 32. I want to invite you to turn there It is so helpful to have God's word in front of you, realizing that this is his story that he has written. He is inviting you into this story. This is the story that will transform all of our stories. So we're going to read verses 22 to 32. So if you brought a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. You can also get your phone out, and you can go to cp.church. You'll land on our our website, homepage. In the lower right corner, you'll see this little blue circle with these this kind of next steps looking symbol. If you click that, you'll see something that comes up that says sermon notes. The text is there, as well as space to take notes. Anything I put up on the slides will be there. But let me go ahead and read this. Here is the quick little setup. We find in this particular spot, here's here's kind of the the breakdown. Months ago, we, we studied the life of Abraham together as a church. 
Abraham eventually, he was promised he's going to be a great nation. He's like, okay, it sounds amazing, but I still don't have any children, right? And then he got where the Bible says he got, him and his wife got past the age of having children, right? Like this polite way of saying that they'd gotten very old, all right? Um, and now they're in this, this spot, like how is this going to happen? And God miraculously provides a son for them. The son Isaac is born to them in their old age. And Isaac then is part of this messianic like hope and story that one day from this family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaac has his own kids, eventually, with his wife, Rebecca. And they have twins, actually. Rebecca has twins, Esau and Jacob. And at this point, Jacob and Esau are estranged from one another. Esau had promised he was going to kill his brother Jacob. We'll look at that, that more later. And so Jacob had fled. He's been gone for a long time. But he is finally, like this is the, the night before he's getting ready to meet his brother. And he goes to be off by himself. That's where we pick up the story. He goes to spend the night alone by the side, by the banks of this particular river. And it's here unexpectedly that this wrestling match occurs. So on the eve, just imagine where his mindset, his psyche would have been. He hasn't seen his brother in years. How nervous. I mean, he's literally going to bed thinking, tomorrow might be it for me. Maybe he's going to make good on his promise that he would end my life because of the things that I'd done to my brother. And here's where we pick up the story. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. And we read this, knowing this is God's word to us. And I think my hope is if we see the story of Jacob, that we can find ourselves in this story, and it'll help make sense of our stories at sort of a high level. The same night he arose, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, that's the river, and he took them, and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So this story of a wrestling match, if we understand this, it will help us come to terms, I believe, in many ways, about this wrestling, honestly, that we need to do with the author of our stories. What it would look like to have the author of our stories bless us, this longing that we have. And so to help us with that, I want to go back just a little bit. We have to understand the context of Jacob's story in order to help us understand, I think, the context of your story and of my story. And again, this is at a very, very high level. But if we go back just a few chapters, we would be in Genesis chapter 25. And I'll read these verses, 21 to 28, and here we get the account of Esau and Jacob being born to Isaac and to Rebekah. And similar to Abraham and Sarah, 
you had Isaac and Rebekah, who for a period of time were unable to have children. And Isaac begins to pray for his wife, and the Lord provides a child. And here's where we pick up the story. It says this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, look at this, the Lord speaks this word to her, this prophetic word. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That is not how things would have gone in that cultural moment and day. But there's a word that is spoken. Verse 24 continues, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, and afterward, his brother came out with his hand, this is so fascinating, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So let's explore for a moment the context of Jacob's story, a context that goes all the way back to the time even in the womb. And this tension that exists between him and his brother There's a striving, a grasping that we need to look at. There's particular family dynamics that are at play here. I mean, to to hear for a moment that Isaac had this particular affection for Esau, you get the impression that, that Jacob, in many ways, was ignored, that he would just spend time with his mom rather than having both parents equally love these two brothers. I mean, one of the things I love about the Bible is that honesty like, if we were to sit down and have a story to get, like, talk about some of our stories, here's, here's what I know. Like, every single person, all of us, like, no one ever had perfect parents, perfect grandparents. Like, we're all, there's just brokenness that is part of our lives. We all need God's grace. And there's some dynamics so that we see in here. And if you're like, man, you don't know my family. Like, they're just crazy. It's like, hey, there's lots of crazy in the Bible as well. So, like, you're in a safe space. Like, this, there is such encouragement here that there's been such, in many ways, such brokenness from the very beginning, but God brings redemption and healing. That God begins to write new stories in places where at one time we would have thought, no, this can't possibly change. And that's what we see in Jacob's life. And so many of you probably heard this. Maybe you, you know, taken some sort of sociology or psychology class or an article or book or something that you've read that maybe kind of two broad categories that we tend to think about when kids are being raised, right? Um, and there's influences on them, right? And the impact that you can have as parents, extended family, all, all of these things. And we can talk about these two words. One is nature and one is nurture, right? Nature meaning like, hey, there's just some things that doesn't matter what the parents do, all right? There's just certain temperaments, dispositions, particular makeup, like DNA makeup, right? That's just like, I don't have any control over that. So like your parents, you know, it's like they didn't get to pick, you know, the the color of your eyes, all right? I'm almost 6'4". It's not like my parents said, oh, let's stretch them out a little bit, right? Like that's not how this played out, all right? 
There's some things that are just beyond control. And then there's a nurture aspect. There are ways that we are influenced by some of our story, our, our place, our family of origin. And so I want to talk for just a moment. I think we've got to see what's going on with Jacob if we're going to better understand our own stories. So for one, the significance of nature. This line, his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. From the very beginning, there's been something in the very makeup, the nature, all right, that we all have a sin nature. There's this brokenness, this separation. And for Jacob, there has been part of his story that he's constantly been grasping. I mean, even as he was coming out of the womb, apparently, it was like, Esau, get back in here. I'm supposed to be first. That there's something in his heart that is just wired toward, I've got to be number one. I've got to I've got to have the place of prestige. It's something that will drive him his entire life, and it's fascinating to know that it started all the way back. In fact, in the ancient Near East, in that time and that place, families would often wait to name a child until after they'd begun to see what the child looked like out in the world, maybe how they started to behave. Like most people, you know, most of the time spend time prior to a kid coming into the world, like debating names, they've got it all picked out for when this child arrives. But back then, you would wait. And Jacob, it tells us, you know, he was grasping at the heel of his brother, and his name was called Jacob. And maybe your Bible says something similar to mine. If you look down a little footnote there, it would say, he's a cheater. He's a deceiver. He's a swindler. There's a crookedness about Jacob. And so think about this. From the moment he comes in, there's something about his nature that is striving, that is deceitful. And and this plays out in all kinds of different ways. We don't have time to tell this whole story, certainly, but it plays out in kind of three key relationships in his life. This brother Esau, this father Isaac, with this extended family member Laban, who he one day goes to work for. But if you know the story of Jacob, you know that very early on, um, his brother Esau who's described as kind of the stereotypical like man's man. He's out there, he's out in the fields, right? And he would, he would go out hunting and he comes in one day and he's absolutely famished. And Jacob, seeing a moment of opportunity to manipulate a particular situation, as his brother comes in famished, hangry, not thinking straight, he says, hey, if you sell me your birthright, here's some stew which seems like a dumb move on Esau's part, right? Like, dude, just go make yourself some dinner, right? It'll be okay. But maybe you've been to that spot. You're just like, you're not thinking clearly. And Jacob capitalizes on that. And birthright is sold for a bowl of stew. Then we get one of the longest accounts in the book of Genesis regarding the life of Jacob. And it's when his father Isaac is nearing his death. Isaac is very old at this point. He has lost his eyesight. And he gives, he brings in his son Esau and he says, Listen, I'm about to die. I want to bestow my blessing on you. And we tend to just think of that and kind of like, Oh, yeah, bless you. Yeah, it's nice. No, like the blessing, it was this significant moment of saying, I'm passing like all of my family headship to you, all that I own to you, all my responsibilities to you. You're the head of this entire family, this people group, and even all the promises about like the, how you're this, you're going to be a nation and a blessing to all the nations. Like that was all like, that's what Isaac is anticipating. So Esau, he says, go hunt me some food, prepare one of your amazing dinners, come back and then I will bless you. 
And maybe you know the story. Rebecca gets, hears this, she overhears this conversation. And so she says to Jacob, here, go put on your brother's clothes. And your skin is not hairy like your brother's, so we'll, we'll slaughter some animals and we'll put the fur there. And so that if your father who is blind has you come near, he might feel your arms and it might feel more like Esau's. And he will, though he can't see you, he will smell Esau on you because of the clothes that you're wearing. And I'll prepare one of his favorite dishes so that you might get the blessing and not your brother. And you know how the story plays out, right? Jacob tricks his father. The guy's on his deathbed. And Jacob comes in and seizes an opportunity to deceive his old blind father. Of course, this enrages Esau when he finds out. And he asks his father, he asks you know, Isaac, is there anything for me? And it tells us in the, sto- the story that Isaac is like trembling. And he's like, no, my son, the blessing has been given. Like, it's done. And Esau, from that day forward, is like, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Jacob gets word, and he flees, and he goes to Laban, this family member living in another part of the, the surrounding countryside. And for many, many years, he works. Laban turns things on Jacob a little bit, tricks him into to marrying his older daughter. When he thought he was getting Rachel, he got Leah instead, and then Rachel eventually. I mean, so there's all these, these things that, that are happening. Again, there's a lot of dysfunction, all right? Um, there's, families have been very broken from the very beginning. And there's things that Jacob does to, to trick Laban, to, to seize opportunities. And so that's, that's his story, that there's part of his nature, that this is kind of who he is and what he does. And so one of the things I think we have to consider in our stories, like Jacob, I don't know if he ever asked, was he, how was he treating people? Had he wounded other people? Maybe ask yourself, how have you wounded others? Like, we have to be honest with this. The things about us where we have grasped for the number one spot. And maybe we've hurt people in the process. We've sinned against people. But friends, it's not just that. I'll tell you, I've read this story ever since. I mean, I remember this Sunday school growing up, all this. And and it was always the version I just told you, which is still true, okay? I don't hear like me say, yeah, scratch all that. That wasn't true, you know? Can I get that 10 minutes back? No, that actually is true. But what I'm saying is there's another aspect to the story that I hadn't considered before. And in studying this, realizing, oh, there's also this nurture aspect, There's something that Jacob didn't get. There's some wounds that took place because of his, like the dynamic in the family there. I mean, think about this, all right? To be named Jacob, every time his name was called, to be called the deceiver, the trickster, right? It's like, how else would you expect to just live out your days if you're just hearing that over and over and over again? Maybe you and your story Maybe you've been named a particular thing, and that's the thing you just default to. Or maybe you feel like you've broken free from that, and then you step back into certain environments, i.e. maybe Thanksgiving, right? And you're there with other people, and suddenly it's like, I got to play this part again, even though it is killing your soul. And so there's this role he felt like he had to play. Imagine the hurt and the pain that he endured as he felt very acutely, I can't measure up to Esau. Dad loves Esau. Dad loves who he is in the world. My dad loves what he can do. I mean, that had to have had an effect. When the scriptures say that he, Esau was loved more by, by Isaac and Rebecca loved you know, Jacob more, like that's not 
put out there is like, parenting 101, pick your favorite child and run with it, right? It's telling us about the brokenness that is present here and this longing that Jacob had. And so, yes, he tricked and he deceived, but there's something in his heart that's like, I just want the blessing. I want to be seen. There's something he's longing for his entire life that he's not actually getting. And here's the thing. When I read to you Genesis 25, Rebecca asks for a word from God, and God tells her, listen, the older will serve the younger. And there is no way that Isaac did not know that. That word was relayed to him, and yet, in defiance of God's plan, Isaac lived out his entire life treating Esau as the one who would be the heir, the ruler, the ultimate one going against the very plan of God. I mean, that's the tension that Jacob is living in. And so on one hand, he's guilty, and on the other hand, we should be incredibly empathetic because it's like, man, what an environment to grow in. God told my parents, he's saying, this word, and yet dad keeps elevating Esau again and again and again. This is why it says that Isaac trembled after he gave the blessing to Isaac. Because in that moment, suddenly, he's just kind of collapsing into the reality that he's lived so much of his life in defiant opposition to God's plan. And so, friends, this is what's going on here, that there's this significance of nature, but also of nurture. And I want to ask you, in the gentlest way possible, all right, have you, how have you, like Jacob, like, been wounded And I think that is not to say you stay in that place, but I do think you need to be honest. Where are the painful places, the places you've probably tried your hardest to ignore? So I'm going to be really good at performing in this way. I'm going to be really good with my grades. I'm going to be really good in how I perform my job, or I'm going to go the exact opposite and get attention other ways. But some way, somehow, we're all trying to deal with our wounds. We all have them. And so what does... This overall context, there's this context, not of Jacob's story only, but of your story and my story. And so as we jump back into then Genesis 32, the struggle that we see in Jacob's story, but also of your story and my story. Look back with me, verses 22 to 25, all right? So it tells us that same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, crossed the land, crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them sent them across the stream. And we get to verse uh, 24, and it says this, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until the breaking of the day. Now, I've heard this story countless times, but I don't know that I've ever just kind of stepped back from it and realized, okay, he's alone, it's dark, He's along the side of the river. Like, this, is the, this is a bad horror movie getting ready to happen, right? All the things that would have been racing in his head, wondering if the next day, when as he meets Esau, like, will he be received in grace and love, or is he going to meet like, the end of his life? So much anxiety, so many things. He's been on the run. His entire life spent just grasping, trying to find that blessing. And then out of nowhere, In the dark shadows of the night, this mysterious figure comes and pounces upon him. 
and doesn't just throw him to the ground and they wrestle for a minute and then it was over. I mean, this is agony. This is going on for hours. They literally wrestle through the night. It is a fight to the death. That is what is actually occurring here. This is not me yesterday when I'm doing a 30-minute little video workout and thinking, oh, God, take me now. My life, it's over. I can't do this, right? This is like agony. It's like flesh on flesh. It's wounding. There's blood, sweat, and tears. All of this is taking place. How disorienting. He doesn't know who it is at this point. He might wonder, did Esau find me? Did he know where I was? And now he's jumped me in the middle of the night. All of this taking place, verse 25 says, and when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, this is fascinating because they're evenly matched, it seems, in this, right? And yet, what happens? We're starting to get insight into, oh, this is not just him wrestling just a mysterious man out of the woods, because this being apparently has the power with him, within him to simply, he didn't say he grabbed him by the leg and yanked, his, you know, yanked it out of socket, right? He literally just says, he touched him on his hip. And then the agony of the pain, and the pain, right? Maybe you've dislocated a finger before, you jammed your toe and it's all crooked, right? Like, I mean, those are, it's excruciating, it's terribly painful. His entire hip now comes out of socket. And this is cluing us in that this is no ordinary being that he is wrestling. And so there's this moment here where Jacob, I think, is having to consider, who is it that I'm fighting? And this passage is inviting us to consider, who have you been fighting? And who have I been fighting? Because Jacob is coming to a realization in this moment that his real fight hasn't been against Esau. His real wrestling match hasn't been against his father Isaac or his uncle Laban. His real wrestling match has been with God all along. Wondering if this God will bless him, if this God would love him, wondering if this God will be true to his promises. That's where the wrestle, that's where the ache, that is what has been going on in his life. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this, speaks of it this way. He says, the conflict brought to a head the, battle, the battling and groping of a lifetime, and Jacob's desperate embrace vividly expressed his ambivalent attitude to God, that's what it was prior, of love and enmity, defiance and dependence, it was against him, meaning it was against God, not Esau or Laban, that he had been pitting his strength, as he now discovered. Yet the initiative had been God's, as it, were, as it was this night, to chasten his pride and challenge his tenacity. The God has shown up. Theologians call this a theophany. It's the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself, showing up to wrestle Jacob not to kill him, but as we will see, to bring blessing to him, to finally help Jacob see the story that he's been caught up in, that he doesn't need to grasp and pull and push and try and get his way, that there's a God there who is wanting to bring this restoration, this renewal, this transformation of his story. There's a God that is wrestling him in that moment, saying, Jacob, this is not the way you have to live anymore. Your battle is not ultimately been against your brother or your dad. 
as significant as those things have been, or your uncle or anyone else, you have been battling me. And you and I, he said, like, there needs to be some honesty here so that you can see your story transformed. And so, friends, let's, let's look at these last couple of verses. There's this transformation of what is Jacob's story. And I think if we see this, it, is, it lays the groundwork for us to begin to see our stories transformed and how we get to be part of writing with God, the ultimate author, a different trajectory for our stories. So it begins back in verse 26. He said this, Then he said, let me go. So this this mysterious figure that we're realizing who it is, all right, says, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's in that moment, Jacob is finally coming to the end of himself. He's like, my whole story, I'm so exhausted. I've been on the run. I've been grasping like crazy. He's like, "I, I need blessing. I need you to bless me. He's like, I've been looking for it my whole life from my dad. I've been looking for it in other things. He's like, I need your blessing. He realizes what all of us actually need to realize is that we need this objective word to be spoken about who we are. And until that happens and we rest in that, our stories will never make any sense. And what's so beautiful in this is sometimes we read passages, and it's so cool to see the way that other points in the scriptures help us interpret what's going on. So in the book of Hosea, all right, the prophet actually gives a word about this occurrence, this wrestling in Genesis 32. And he tells us in chapter 12, the prophet speaks about this. I'll put these words up on the screen. He says this. He's talking about Jacob. He says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. And then verse 4, it says, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Do you see what this is communicating? This story, this moment where Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He's actually coming undone. He's not holding on in his strength. He's holding on in his desperation. He's gotten to the point where he's like, I'm sick and tired of running. I'm sick and tired of trying to do this on my own. It has not worked. He has come to the end of himself. And I love the way Hosea gives this interpretation. He wept and sought his favor. Or another translation for that, he wept and he sought grace. Your story and my story is meant to connect with this ultimate story of God's grace, of his favor. I pray that you had people in your life growing up and continue to that show you grace and show you love and shower you with compassion. They forgive you when you mess mess up and you've got a beautiful relationship. But I know enough about the human condition and the story to know that the reality is like none of us get that perfectly. We don't provide that perfectly for other people as much as we might even try to do it. We can't do it. We all with tear-soaked faces need to cry out and say, I am looking for your favor. Will you bless me? You're not going to get that favor and blessing from your job. You're not going to get it from your kids. You're not going to get it from your parents, your grandparents, your friends, your school. Nothing will give you the blessing that your story needs to move forward except for the grace and the mercy of God. Kent Hughes commenting on this says, and here we discover Jacob's heart attitude in the God-given interpretation of the story as we see it in Hosea chapter 12. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. 
It was not from proud dominance that Jacob asked for blessing, but with tears. His request came when he was at the end of himself, helpless. I will not let you go unless you bless me, was a tear-choked plea. Want your story to be transformed? Individually, collectively, together? This tear-choked plea, Lord, will you bless me? We're looking for that outside word. I'm sure many of you are familiar. Remember, I, I, I love a good, you know, I love to watch sports, love good sports drama, good sports movie, compelling endings, all, all, the, all these sort of things. Um, and going back to the original Rocky series, so we'll talk about a fight for a moment. Some of you may remember this. Some of you are like, I know the, new, the newer ones. Those are great too. But I'm talking like old school Rocky, like Sylvester Stallone, like, you know, not looking the way he does today, right? Like Sylvester Stallone, all right? Um, and there's this scene from the, the first one. And you, if you know this, you know that he's got this ultimate fight against Apollo Creed that's coming up. And you know that he's anxious and he's nervous. And his, his girl, Adrian, right, that he's got, he's coming back from working out one day and he's just, he's confessing to her. He's literally being honest, like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I've got what it takes. And it's this picture of how all of us feel. And he's looking for something objective. And in the, this moment, right, he says this. He's not even talking about winning at this point. Here's what, it, what he says. Here's the quote, right? You can, you can try and hear it through a Sylvester Stallone Rocky accent, which I can't do. But anyway, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed, he says. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What's going on? There has been this striving, there's been this anxiousness, there's been this wondering, do I have what it takes? Does my story matter? And he's hoping going the distance in a fight will do that. And I can see how that might for a moment be worth celebrating, but it's all fleeting. And there's things that you and I have pursued, things if I get that, ah, then, then I'll be happy. But until we come to the place of saying, I need that objective word from God, speaking a blessing over me, we will not find the rest that we're created for. And he says, he said to him, verse 27, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Friends, in this story, as we get near the end of it here, it's a fascinating thing. Don't miss this detail. Maybe the way to think about it is this. Wait, Jacob won, right? Like he literally is like, you have prevailed. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How did that happen? But what we have introduced here is the storyline we see through the entire Bible. It's the storyline that finds its completion, its fulfillment, and the storyline of Jesus is that weakness is the way to winning. This mysterious figure could have crushed Jacob. The pre-incarnate Jesus showing up, Jacob doesn't stand a chance. But he intentionally throttles his strength so that Jacob could prevail. And it tells us this picture, it gives us this insight into how God's kingdom actually works. That it's when we're weak, we're actually strong when we recognize the limp that we have, the brokenness that we carry, the wounds that we, we carry, 
that we can acknowledge them for what they are, but we also can say, and Jesus met me in that place, that those are the stories that we're invited to lean into and to live out because it ultimately reflects the story of the gospel, that weakness is the way to winning. Let me read what Paul said in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus who possessed all strength, and notice the language that I'm about to read, he didn't grasp for it. He didn't grasp for his power in his rightful place, but he emptied himself. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, bound in the, found, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ultimate weakness, losing everything in order that life might be found, that we might have new life. Jacob gets renamed Israel to no longer be identified as the cheater, the scoundrel, the deceiver. He's given a new name. That weakness is the way to winning. And we see that with Jesus. When Satan looked like it looked like he had been victorious, it all gets turned upside down in God's kingdom. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name the significance of a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because of the name Jesus has secured, friends, you have been renamed by him if you're in Christ, that you are his beloved, that you have an inheritance, you have a place in the family, the perfect family of God. That's the story you've been invited into. And so as it close, we'll close with this verse. And he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And this is so fascinating in verse 31. And the sun rose. He went to bed all alone in the darkness. God met him and changed the trajectory of his story. In his moment of honesty, Jacob's desperation, and yet there is a bruising. It says, the sun rose as he passed, limping because of his hip. But as one theologian put it, every single step preached a sermon. It was a constant reminder for Jacob, God met me, and God didn't kill me. God gave me a new name. He gave me life. That weakness is the way to ultimate winning. And that's the invitation of your story. It's this invitation that we have into God's ultimate story. That when we limp and we do and we have our wounds, there'll be wounds that will come. God meets us in those places. In the book, Limping with God, Chad Bird said it this way. We are limping with God. However, not from him, not to him, or apart from him, but with him. And if our eyes could only see the unseen, we would realize that we are being borne along by hands that still bear the scars of a sacrifice joyfully made for us. That's the God who carries you, who invites you to join him in authoring your story the glory of the Father, and for our joy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, and your grace.
Thank you that you are making all things new, that you are redeeming our stories. May we be encouraged to be honest about our need. May we get time simply to even just to be alone with you and to consider these things. And would we find great joy in taking up the invitation to join you in writing of our stories. We thank you that you are the ultimate author and that you are writing the most amazing, compelling narrative ever. Thank you that we get to be part of your story. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.